Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to consider this third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, in the light of Psalm 131, one of the briefest psalms in the Psalter. Now, that psalm is not in itself a petition that the Lord's will be done. It is a prayer. Lord, he says at the beginning, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. He's talking to the Lord. But he does not specifically here in this psalm uh, make petition that the Lord's will be done. Rather, uh, we consider this psalm because this psalm illustrates, I think, for us the disposition of heart that is necessary for us actually to pray, thy will be done. Or to put it another way, this psalm illustrates for us the Christian virtues that are necessary for us to pray, thy will be done. And in fact, I do not think it's off the mark to say that David has in mind here, though he does not mention it specifically, that David has in mind here resting in the will of God or finding peace in the will of God. And so that's going to be our theme for this afternoon, resting in the will of God. And we're going to consider three things about that. First of all, resting in the will of God by humility. Secondly, resting in the will of God by contentment. And thirdly, resting in the will of God by hope. So we begin then our discussion of this psalm with verse 1 and David's words to the Lord, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. David uses there in that first part of verse 1 two words for pride. Haughty and lofty. And those two words are not in themselves, in the Hebrew language, words for pride. I think we should notice that first of all. In fact, the word in the first line is really simply high. Lord, my heart is not high, he says. And that's a word that in the Hebrew can be applied to things. For example, you might speak of high walls, or you might speak of a high mountain. It's even a word that's used of tall people. So it's said of Saul that he was taller than all the people by his shoulders, head and shoulders. But it's also used in the Old Testament in other ways, in metaphorical ways that don't have anything to do with pride, but are instead more positive ideas. So, for example, in Psalm 113, verse 5, we read this, Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high? That's the same word. He is the Lord our God who dwells on high. We read also that his ways are higher than our ways. And in Isaiah 52, verse 13, we have this expression, Isaiah 52, verse 13, 
Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. All of these are very positive uses of that word. In Job chapter 40, in fact, the word high becomes a synonym for glory or majesty or splendor. It's translated as splendor there in Job 40. In 2 Chronicles 17 verse 6, we have another use of that word that's really outside the scope of our use of the English word high. 2 Chronicles 17 verse 6 And his heart, we read, this is Jehoshaphat, took delight or was high in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. So you see all those positive connotations in this metaphorical uh, context. But it's also a word then, because it's a word which has such a breadth of meaning, it's also a word that's used for the concept of pride. David says in Psalm 101, then, Psalm 101, verse um, 5, the one who has a haughty, or the one who has a high look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. There you have that. Uh, use of it in a, in a proud sense. Or Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, is another place where you have the same kind of use. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or a high spirit before a fall. And you have in Psalm 10, verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance or in his high countenance does not seek God. And there are examples of this kind of pride given to us too. I think these examples illustrate for us precisely what this word high, when it's taken in the sense of pride, means. So in 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16, we have this word applied to Uzziah when he went into the temple of the Lord to offer uh, incense there, when he presumed Second Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, or his heart was high to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. We have another example just a few chapters later in Second Chronicles 32, verse 25. This one is about Hezekiah. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up, or his heart was high. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. And you can read in the next verse, in fact, then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, and he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. That's a, a reference, I think, to Hezekiah showing the princes of Babylon the treasures of his house and of the Lord's house. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we have another example, this time in the prince of Tyre. God is speaking against the king of Tyre in this chapter. He says, to him, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas, yet you are not you are a man and not a God. 
though you set your heart as the heart of a god. So his heart was high, his heart was lifted up, as we have. And again in verse 17 of that chapter, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now if you take those passages together, I think what you see then is that this pride that David is talking about here is the pride of presumption. That is, it's the pride which asserts oneself against one's station or against the limitations of one's capacities, of one's understanding or one's strength. It's the kind of pride that says, I'm greater than I, I, I really am in myself, or wants to think of oneself greater than he really is. And it wants to uh, take for itself privileges that do not belong to it, as Isaiah did when he entered the temple. He wants to uh, assume responsibilities that don't belong to his station and calling. He wants to transgress on the responsibilities and and callings of others. He wants to lift himself up against God and set himself in the place of God. There's a presumption here. That's the kind of pride that uh, David is talking about. It's the pride of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they wanted to be like God. So it's going beyond the limitations of our station, our calling, or our capacities as God has given uh, them to us. And when David says then here in Psalm 131, my heart is not haughty, he is talking about that humility which knows its own place, which knows the limitations of its understanding, knows the limitations of its calling, knows the uh, limitations of its rights before God. It submits then to those limitations and to those restrictions that God has placed upon us. That's the humility he's talking about. My heart is not haughty. Now when David goes on in the next line to say, nor my eyes lofty, we should notice in the first place that he switches from heart to eyes. So he talks first about what is inward, and then he talks about how that pride expresses itself in the eyes. And we'll get to that in a moment, but let's talk about that word lofty. Again, this is one of those words that's not a direct description of pride. It it means simply exalted, nor are my eyes exalted. And I think we can say there are two sides to this pride then that David is talking about. In the first place, of course, these exalted eyes or these lofty eyes are eyes that will not look down to what they think is beneath them. This person who has lofty eyes thinks that he is superior to certain persons, that he is superior to certain tasks and to certain ways of life and so on, And he will not lower his eyes to them. He absolutely contradicts then the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ in washing his disciples' feet and setting an example for us of washing the disciples' feet. We 
say in our pride and the loftiness of our eyes, that's beneath me. I can't do that because that's the kind of task that lower people do. I'm above that. I've achieved something beyond that. That I won't do. So that's one thing about this loftiness, this pride. And the other thing about this loftiness of eyes is that it lifts itself up then to things that are above it and it desires things that are beyond it. It wants to feed its sense of self-importance by achieving greatness, by associating with the great, by by lifting its eyes then to the things that it considers worthy of it. In 2 Kings 19, verse 22, we find this. 2 Kings 19, verse 22 This is God speaking by the prophet Isaiah to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who was coming against Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's what David is talking about here. So this humility that David is talking about here says... There is nothing, no person and no task and no way of life that is too lowly for me. I may be trained to be a doctor, but if God so works in my life that I have to uh, serve as a clerk in a store, I won't consider that beneath me. God may have made me very rich, but if God calls me to associate with the poor. I will not associate with them as one who is superior to them. I will consider them equal to myself or even better than myself. There is not then in this loftiness of, of, there is in this loftiness of I, a desire to feed self-importance. And the humility that David is talking about is the humility that says, I'm not important. And I don't want to feed my self-importance. I want to submit instead. I want to be humble. I want my eyes to be lowly. We, in this uh, humility, then wait for God to exalt us instead of exalting ourselves. Hannah talks about that in the song she sang after she brought uh, Samuel to the temple. That song is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And you find this, uh, that this song really centers around the ideas of exaltation and abasement. So in verse 1 she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up or exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. 
And in the last couple of lines of verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing, of his anointed. So this humility that David is talking about here does not say God will not exalt me, but it says God will exalt me. I will not exalt myself. And I think it's in that context of looking at those words in that way that there's a, this presumptuous pride that David is talking about here, this trespassing on things that do not belong to us, that then David says in the last part of the verse, neither do I concern myself with great matters nor with things too profound for me. This is how his humility expresses itself. He doesn't concern himself with great matters, or to translate literally from the Hebrew, I do not walk in great things, nor with things too wonderful for me, rather than profound, too wonderful for me. And I think you see an example of this. In fact, David may well have had this in mind when he wrote this psalm. You see an example of this in David's coming to the kingship. God chose him out of all the men of Judah to be his anointed one. And, but David did not presume on that anointing which the Lord had given to him and did not seek from that point on to become the king. He was never working against Saul in order to establish himself as king, but he waited for the Lord to exalt him. He had opportunities to exalt himself and did not take those opportunities. He could have pushed himself forward at the time that the, uh, Saul's son Ishbosheth perished, and he waited for the Lord to call him through the other tribes of Israel. He always did not. Presume he did not trespass on those great things. There are other examples of this as well. In Jeremiah chapter 45, Jeremiah is advising the believing Barak who had served him, in fact, and he says to Barak, Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. And that word wonderful in the second line here is also important. This is the same word that is associated with the wonderful works of God. A word that's translated as wonderful works or wonders. It refers to those great miraculous works of God that we see talked about throughout the scriptures. But it, the, the idea of that word is illustrated for us in a couple of passages. Let's turn to uh, Judges, first of all, chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. Judges 13, verses 17 and 18. This is the account of the angel coming to Manoah and his wife, to Samson's parents. And when the angel had told them that they were going to have a son, and when he had told them what they were to do in the raising of their son, then Manoah and his wife wanted to know the angel's name. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? 
And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In other words, what the angel was saying to Manoah is, I'm not going to tell you my name, and I'm not going to tell you my name, because my name is too wonderful for you. You can't comprehend that name. You can't bear that name now. This name is above your capacity, and I'm not going to speak the name to you. You have to wait for a later time in order to hear that name. It's too wonderful. So David is saying, I don't inquire into those things that are too wonderful for me. I don't try to know those things that are beyond my capacity. We have another example of this, I think, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where we read this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and we are not to pry, curiously to pry into those things that belong to the Lord our God. He has revealed to us his law, he has revealed to us certain things about the future, that the Lord is coming again, for example, that he will uh, bring us to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, and all those promises that he speaks to us, those are things that he has revealed to us, and those are things we may concern ourselves with. But there are other things that he has hidden from us, other things that are too wonderful for us, that are too great for us. And it's our business then not curiously to pry into those things as if we should know them or we have a right to know them, but to wait until the Lord chooses to reveal them to us. So this humility, that David is talking about here is the recognition of the limits of our capacity, the limits of our authority, the limits of our rights, the limits of our knowledge, the limits of our responsibilities as God has assigned them to us. The limits, in fact, of our being creatures, of being creatures who have been placed in particular stations and callings here in this life and who must not trespass on those things which are greater than what God has assigned to us or which are too wonderful for us to grasp at this point. Calvin talks about it in these terms in his comment on this passage. He says this, There are two different forms which the presumption of those takes who will not submit to be humble followers of God but must needs run before him. Some rush forward with a reckless precipitancy. You think of Moses when he killed the Egyptian and seem as if they would build to the skies. Others do not so openly exhibit the inordinateness of their desires, are slower in their movements and cautiously calculate upon the future. And yet their presumption appears no less from the very fact that with a total oversight of God, as if heaven and earth were subject to them, They pass their decree as to what shall be done by them some 10 or 20 years hereafter. And James talks about it also in the last part of chapter 4 of his epistle, James chapter 4. He says, 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So this is that presumptuous pride that David says, I have set that aside. My heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. But you see there in James 2, then, the connection between that presumptuous pride and this prayer, thy will be done. James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. That is, our ambition, if you want to use that word, limits itself to the will of the Lord. And without this humility, then, that limits itself to the will of the Lord, we cannot pray, people of God, thy will be done. We cannot rest in the will of the Lord if we are constantly trying to feed our self-importance to trespass beyond the limits and the bounds that God has set. There is necessary to that prayer Humility, a humility which looks to the Lord to exalt us and waits for Him. If you think you are great, then you will not say, Thy will be done when the Lord humbles you. If you think that you need to feed your sense of self importance, you will not be happy when the Lord does not give you those things that you think are necessary for your self-importance. You can't say honestly, thy will be done when you are lifting yourself up in pride, in presumptuous pride against God. So first of all then, it is necessary in this prayer to humble our hearts. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, nor neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. That's the first thing. Now the second thing is found in verse 2. And here David switches really from the subject of pride to the subject of contentment. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. There's a relationship between these two things. In order to calm and quiet your soul, in order to be content, you must put aside your pride. Pride is always discontented. We have to humble ourselves in order to learn this calmness and quiet of soul. Now what is this contentment then that David is talking about here? Well, I think we may say that it belong, first of all, to that contentment belongs not being displeased or downcast if we don't get what we want. 
not being displeased or downcast if we don't get what we want. And so Paul can say while he's in prison, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And Job can say, after he has lost everything, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. They didn't get what they wanted. Paul would not have chosen to be in prison, nor would Job have chosen to lose everything, including his sons and daughters. But they were able to be content in the way of the Lord. Job later lost that contentment, of course, and began to curse the day of his birth and to question the ways of the Lord. And the Lord had to humble him again at the end of that book. But at first, Job knew what it meant to be content in the ways of the Lord. That's one half of this contentment. But the other half of this contentment then is to have a a joyful acceptance of what God does give. On the one hand, not to be discontented or displeased or downcast because God has withheld from us our desires, but then to be happy, joyfully happy with what God has given. To count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials. That's the contentment David is talking about here. Surely, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother. Let's look at those words because those words are important here. I think perhaps the first response to that word of David there is that what he means is that this child has just finished nursing at his mother's breast and his tummy is full and he's satisfied, he's content. And his mother is actually holding him in her arms so that he has everything that an infant wants. He has a full tummy and he has his mother's love. And there's no reason for him to be content. That may well be how we read that verse in the first place, but David doesn't say like a child who has nursed. He says like a weaned child. This is then a child who has been deprived of his mother's breast because the time has come for him to be weaned. His mother still holds him in her arms, but she will not give him the breast. He has to make an adjustment now to different kinds and different ways of feeding. He may not like the bottle, or he may not like the cereal, or he may not like whatever it is that his mother is trying to give him. He has to um, give up the breast which he has loved so much for a year or more of his life. And he has to then learn. That's what David's getting at here. He has to learn contentment. It's not a contentment that comes naturally. It's a contentment that he has to learn. 
And so, people of God, that's what David is saying. He's not saying, I'm naturally content because all my desires have been satisfied. He's saying, no, I haven't got all that I would want. I haven't got all that I have desired. But I have learned to be content. That's what Paul says too. I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. And that's also suggested then, isn't it, in the first part of the verse. Surely, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. His soul was ruffled, if you will. His soul was discontented. His soul was full of complaints. His his soul was restless and disturbed. For whatever reason, because he didn't get what he wanted. But he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. So he says that this child is still upheld by his mother in his mother's arms, still comforted in his mother's arms, but he can't have what he wants for the moment. And David says, I couldn't have what I wanted, but I calmed and quieted my soul. What David actually says there, if you translated the Hebrew literally in that second line, is like a weaned child upon his mother. And I call your attention to that because he uses the very same language in the next line. Like a weaned child is my soul upon me. And it's as if David is saying, I am cradling my soul in my arms to comfort my soul, to quiet my soul, as the mother comforts her complaining child. I have calmed and quieted my soul. So you see, David is talking about contentment, but he's talking about a contentment that follows a struggle, a struggle against his natural desires. And this is what we need When we pray, thy will be done, if we are going to rest in the will of the Lord. You can't pray, thy will be done, if you are grasping after all your soul's desires, if your soul is unquiet, if your soul is full of complaints against God, if your soul is insisting upon the satisfaction of its desires. You have to calm and quiet your soul before the face of God in order to be able to say, Thy will be done. So those are two virtues that are necessary for praying this prayer. Humility and contentment. Pride says, I know best. I need to have what I want. God give it to me. Humility says, God is great and I am little. Let God's will be done. Contentment says, I must have my desires satisfied, and I will complain until they are satisfied. And contentment says, the Lord's will is better. Thy will be done. There is yet a third virtue that David talks about here in verse 3. 
the virtue of hope. Now notice how David changes the thrust of the psalm here. In verses 1 and 2, he's focused on himself. My heart is not haughty. I have calmed and quieted my soul. In verse 3, he talks to Israel instead. He's no longer talking about himself. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He could have said, would have made perfect sense here, I will hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Would have been perfectly uh, consistent with verses 1 and 2. And we may even question, well, why does he change the focus here from himself to Israel? And I think the answer to that is, David is saying to himself, I have learned this lesson. I have learned this lesson of humility. I have learned this lesson of contentment. I have learned this lesson of hope. Now let me teach it to my people. So he addresses them, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He wants to pass along to Israel then what he has learned. Not just about hoping, but also about humility and contentment. Now what is hope? Well, hope is the expectation of good in the future. The expectation of good in the future. We have all these promises of God regarding our future. I will keep you. I will provide for you. I will uh, give to you joy and peace. I will forgive your sins. I will ultimately bring you to the glory of heaven and give to you the crown that does not fade away. I I will give you all these different things, all these different blessings. And hope says, I expect God to fulfill his promises. I'm assured that he will do what he has said. That's one side of hope. The other side of hope is that we wait patiently for God to give those things that we hope for. Paul says when he's talking about hope, we don't hope for things that we see. We hope for things that we don't see. And if we hope for things that we don't see, we wait with patience. For them. See how he combines that idea of hope with patience and with waiting. We know that the promises of God are there for us, but we don't insist, people of God, that God immediately fulfill those promises. We say, rather, I will wait. I will wait for the Lord to do what he has said. I will continue to hope. I will continue to expect good. I will not let my hope falter. However long I have to wait. But I will be patient also. But now notice that as David talks about this hope, he turns away from himself and he advises Israel also to turn away from herself. He's in the first two verses, when he's talked about humility and contentment, he's been focused on himself. I need to humble the pride of my heart. I need to calm and quiet my soul. But that's not all I need to do. 
I need also to look outward from myself. I need to look to the Lord. I need to put my hope in the Lord. He directs then his attention away from himself. He does not consider himself to be the most important thing, the center of the world, around which everything else, including God, must revolve. But he considers God to be the center of the world. And he looks to God and his way is directed to God and his hope is directed to God. He's outside of himself. He's not even, as it were, in a sense, thinking about himself, but thinking about the Lord and thinking about the Lord's goodness and his promises. And it's these things, this hope then, that makes humility and contentment possible. It's this outward focus of turning his attention to the Lord and turning his attention to the Lord's promises and the Lord's will that make it possible for him to humble his pride and to say, I'm not great enough to consider all these factors that have to be taken into account about my future. It's my business here and now to be content with the Lord's way. And I can be content with the Lord's way Because I have hope in him. I can lay aside then all that old baggage of my desires and my pride. And I can look to the Lord as the one who provides my good. In fact, of course, this hope then fixes our desires not on the things that we think are best for ourselves, but on the highest good, that good which is the Lord's will. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ did during his earthly ministry, throughout his earthly ministry. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And praying in the garden, terrorized by the cross, not my will, but thine be done. He had learned humility. I do not come to assert myself, but to glorify my Father. I do not come to be constantly harassing the Lord about my desires and the satisfaction of my desires. I have come rather to do the Lord's will, And I will pray, I will pray, thy will be done. Whatever it may mean for me. So we need, people of God, to put away pride. We need to put away discontent. And we need to nurture hope in order to pray, thy will be done. That hope that takes hold of God's promises. We put away the pride that meddles in great things and wonderful things that are beyond us. We put away discontent which says, I am not pleased with what God has done. And we say instead, I have lost my pride. I have lost my desire. My hope is in the Lord. Thy will, not mine, be done. May God bless the proclamation of his word.